So welcome to Wild Women. Today we're talking about a fairly intimate topic, something that both Camila and I have had um, struggled with and overcome during our teen years and a little bit into our young adulthood. So Camille, do you want to explain our topic a little bit? Yes. So today we're going to talk about our past eating disorders. Um, yeah. So one thing that's a huge misconception about eating disorders is that they can come in so many different forms and they can affect people of all sizes. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone is super skinny, nor does it mean that they're overly obese either. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the plethora of eating disorders that exist, there were two main ones and the two, well, the two most popular ones and the two most common are both anorexia and bulimia. Camille, do you want to tell us a little bit about what anorexia is? Um, sure. But before I start into that, um, I will be talking about um, the new kind of eating disorder. It's not yet in the DSM, which is the Manual of Mental Illnesses, um, but it's orthorexia, which means obsession with clean eating. And that's actually how my anorexia started. So what happens for a lot of people is they go on diets one after the other, and then it turns into an eating disorder. That didn't really happen to me. So I just got more and more into like, I would say like losing weight and trying to stay healthy. And then I would cut out like complete groups of food. So like carbs and fats and all of those. And then it became, it took over my life. It became a complete obsession. I couldn't, I was always thinking about my next meal, how I was going to burn it off. And I got really, really lucky because my parents were there and were pretty aware of like what I was doing. And like I talked to my dad not long ago about this and I wasn't either like hiding it super well, um, which a lot of people do, I guess. I'm just not someone who naturally knows how to, I guess, lie and hide those things, which was actually for my benefit because then like they were able to actually like confront me about it and obviously there was some denial at first but when I remember when it got really bad and I was like hey I can't do this anymore I can't live this way I hadn't eaten much during the day and I remember like it was uh, dinner time at my place and I was really hungry and I couldn't bring myself up to eating an apple and I had a complete meltdown over like how I couldn't let myself eat an apple and I was like okay this is not normal let's do something about it and then I with my parents we looked um, into resources and we found a great therapist that specialized in eating disorders she actually used to work for Chio, so she had lots of experience with that. And yeah, it took me, I saw her for two years before I could feel like I was comfortable enough with my eating 
to really go into more like intuitive eating and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that the CHEO program that they had for eating disorders was amazing for kids, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of um, psychologists that like came out of that to start dealing with you know teens and teens are still children, but like more like young adults as well. For my eating disorder, I kind of went through a lot of ups and downs before, you know, I found something that worked for me. And Mm -hmm. when I was young, young, like age, like 12, 13, that's when like, I started obsessing over like calories and exercise. And my eating disorder started as anorexia back then. Mm -hmm. And but I was so young that like, I didn't really understand what I was doing. And then I just gradually, quote unquote, grew out of it. And then when I was about 14, 15, I had a friend who was really close to me. And she suffered a lot from anorexia, and she was hospitalized. And I think that just affected me. One thing with people with eating disorders is that if you have two people with eating, well, two people who have issues around eating that are together, they tend to somewhat compete over who can be sicker. Yeah, that was the same for me, actually. Yeah, and although that sounds crazy, like, that's what you do, like, um, and, but for me at that point in my life, like, I was super, super active, I was a competitive athlete, and there's almost, like, no way for me not to, to stop eating, basically. So um, I guess that's how my bulimia started where, you know, I just feel guilty for eating and purge. And because my like bulimia kind of manifested itself in a way where like I just wouldn't eat all day and then I would binge and then purge and exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time I was hospitalized later that year, I was diagnosed with bulimia with anorexic tendencies. And then after my hospitalization, I was good for about a year and a bit. And then starting grade 12, I kind of, I kind of developed orthorexia and I was going to the gym like four hours a day, but I was eating super healthy. And like, I was so, so, so focused on my body and like my performance in the gym and how I looked. And then um, by the time I got to university in the States and I was no longer with my family and like the people who supported me most and being around a place that's a super, super new atmosphere, it kind of triggered my eating disorder again. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very common. They say that there's like three stages in your life that are like the most prominent in a person's life and they can be catastrophic and like cause huge um changes in someone someone's personality and those three times are when you leave your parents for the very first time so like at age three or four when you go to school then the second time is when you leave home so university college or you just move out and then the third time is marriage and yeah so that in that second stage i guess of me leaving home for the first time really triggered my eating disorder and it was the same as it was when I was 15 and hospitalized it was bulimic with anorexic tendencies and then yeah and then when I moved back home like I got healthier again and it took about a year of like going back and forth between 
you know, like having good days and bad before I finally settled into like a healthy, I guess you could say intuitive eating, intuitive exercise type of routine that I guess happened last fall. Mm -hmm. So it was a long drawn out nine years of ups and downs through the eating disorder. But a lot of people who have eating disorders also deal with other types of mental illness. So for me, I dealt with Uh, major manic depression which is similar very similar to bipolar disorder some people even say it's the same thing basically you just go through highs and lows so some days you feel really good other days you feel very sad and depressed and those days where I felt sad and depressed and worthless were my bad days with my eating disorder um Camille you dealt with other mental issues other than just your eating disorder as well right Mm -hmm. yeah in high school, at, at least at the same time as I had, like, my eating disorder. Well, so I think I had, like, anxiety all my life because I remember, like, being a kid um, in elementary school and kindergarten and, like, wanting to throw up because I was so anxious to go to school. Um, and then it just got worse in high school and, like, I couldn't go and take the bus I couldn't go and talk to a cashier like everything gave me anxiety and I also had like depression and I was I would say like even suicidal at that point um but obviously like it's it's better now and it's crazy to think because I am facilitating like support groups for people with eating disorders And it's crazy to think that like six years ago, I was just starting my recovery and I was at the same place that they are now. And so much, so much has changed in six years. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things can change. And I guess what, what was so interesting about and kind of almost annoying during like my recovery was that. I started recovery so many times at so many different stages of my life, you know, like Mm I started when I was like 12, 13, when I didn't know what was going on to like when I was 15, 16, where I was super hormonal and like not very self-aware of my surroundings and body to like when I was like 18, 19, when, you know, you finally well, at least for myself, when I finally started to give myself credit and, like, understand the importance of, like, self-worth and so on, too. Um, Another thing that I should mention about my eating disorder is that I was a victim of sexual abuse when I was 17, and it happened not too long before I left for school in the States. And so because of that, when I came back home and started seeing a therapist again, they had diagnosed me as, you know, like a, I guess, PTSD patient of Mm -hmm. sexual So I guess the nice part about it is that I get therapy for the rest of my life, which is good if I want it or if I feel like I need it. But um, the not so great part of that is that traumatic experience that still kind of resonates with me and I still have bouts and times where like I feel kind of consumed in that 
and it's affected my relationships moving forward, not only with my parents, but also with um, significant others, right? You know, that trust that literally was gone. Like I had no trust left after that. And I guess, oh, I kind of used promiscuity as a way to cope with those feelings of, I guess, vulnerability and distrust and quote unquote being traumatized. Like all those manifested in my eating disorder, promiscuity, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, the odd abuse of alcohol, right? Yeah, which is something pretty common too. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, I guess, anything that could be traumatic in anyone's life can manifest in not only mental illness, but can manifest in um, relationships and addiction Mm -hmm. and abuse of things. And one thing that I do want to mention for people that don't, that wouldn't necessarily relate to it, because when I had my eating disorder, or at least like when my depression started and when my anxiety started and when my eating disorder started, like no really traumatic event had happened to me personally. One thing that I always felt about is the fact that my therapist or my social workers would all always tell me like, oh, but you're like, why do you have problems? Like your family is perfect. And that might be true on the outside, but no family is perfect. And one thing that I've been learning more and more about is that other stuff can create like mental illnesses and stuff like that, such as like, you know, like when you're like too close. Oh, enmeshment. Like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So it's hard to explain. It's basically when you are consumed by other people, like you're so close to Mm -hmm. them that you like your life is just consumed with it yeah so it's like codependency and then like a lack of boundaries and like the whole family like emotionally like there's no there's no limits to like everything ripples out Mm -hmm. and bless her soul but that was my mom and so from a young age I took on her anxieties as well and then when everything happened with the cancer like I didn't know how to deal with any of that and like you said I also had my best friend had an 18 years older and she might not knew it at the time but when she was talking to me about it like I was using it as tips on how to like <laughs> go further ahead And one thing that I do want to mention as well is um, because I saw it like tonight, those pro Anna like account and pro Mia account, which is uh, short for pro anorexia and pro um, bulimia account are so, so dangerous. And so I find it so extremely sad to see that someone can be so ingrained into that disorder that mental illness that it makes you think that it's good and I mean I remember being part of it and feeling like this is like something so special this is what makes me special this is what makes me feel good but it's so sad (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah no accounts like that are they're awful and like the worst part about it is that it's so easily masked as like wellness Mm. you know 
like the exercise and the healthy eating, like, and people don't understand that those people on those pro Anna and pro Mia accounts, well, not so much pro Mia, like most people should know, like, don't make yourself grow up. Um, but you know, people with eating disorders are really good at rationalizing everything they oh do. Oh my God. Yes. And yeah. And Camille, you say that you weren't super good at hiding it and weren't super good at lying. Whereas I was the opposite. I was the most manipulative liar. And it's something that like, I still work on to this day, not even just about my eating disorder, but just about life in general, because that eating disorder taught me so much about how to manipulate people around me, how to Mm -hmm. um, figure out lies, how to get my way almost all the time. And yeah, and that's where like, you know, my parents had to learn how to set boundaries with me and realize, okay, like you're hurting us by hurting yourself. Mm. Either do this or I'm cutting you off from a certain amount of emotional support. And and that's how it can be for a lot of people with, and it sounds very similar to someone with, you know, alcohol addiction or addiction. And and that's what it's like to have an eating disorder. It's a type of addiction, right? Mm. So talking about all the not so great stuff, let's talk a little bit about the recovery process and things we learned from it. So I think a lot of it is about like going to the root of the issue. So it's to figure out like, what is it like this? Yes, there is low self-worth. There's usually like um, a need for perfection a need for control and like it's a way to give yourself some self-worth but why is that like what trauma lies under it so that can be a long process and that can be I would say even hurtful sometimes because you have to face some really dark memories um but it's necessary so can you tell us a little bit more about how it was in the hospital and how did it help you? Yeah, so what's interesting about the hospital and especially like like my experience in the hospital, I literally only went to the hospital to make sure I would like stay alive. So mm. I only went for health reasons, but my, I had four people who were part of an eating disorder recovery team. So I had a nurse practitioner, a psychotherapist, a dietitian, and then um, a psychologist. And um, I saw those people every week, two, three hour sessions. And I started seeing them. And then I was hospitalized about a month in. It's pretty common for people to start therapy and then all of a sudden go on a downhill spiral because it's a lot of them. It's a lot um, to take on sometimes, Mm -hmm. especially if you're already really like far into your eating disorder. So the hospital that I went to was the same hospital I went to for my treatment, uh, my outpatient treatment. So going to the hospital was really just being force fed and watched 24 seven and it's it it sucks like you're not trusted at all you can't go to the bathroom yourself you can't Mm -hmm. shower yourself you have 
they put like plastic bags over every sink, over every toilet, like, and obviously you're kind con- you're being force fed. Like someone sits there with you till you finish your full meal. Um, for me, I kind of like, honestly, as much as I hated it, I liked it a little bit because it was nice, like not having to be in control over anything, mm. you know, yeah. like I didn't have the choice. Like it was just do this. It was just someone telling me to do that. And I felt safe. I didn't feel the pressure of like, quote unquote, society to like, mm-hmm. Ethan, like, at that point, it was like, life or death, you know, like, eat this or you're gone and you're going to get praised for eating. You're not going to get scrutinized for not being skinny, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then after that, I'll be honest, I got a little bit annoyed with my team of you know the psychologists and like the dietitians and so on and I I don't know why I think I was just having a bad day and I was 16 and at the time I had I was already back to a healthy weight but I gained a lot of weight really fast and like that was really hard for me yeah that's what happens Mm -hmm. yeah and I uh, I I told them I I didn't want to go back I didn't want to go back and see them and and I thought I was fine and I was fine for like a while but like you said it was just putting a band-aid on right and Mm -hmm. then within a year and a half I was already back struggling with an eating disorder again anyways and I saw a lot of therapists so like I saw a therapist before I had that team at the hospital um I saw a therapist after um and then it wasn't until I met my life coach that things kind of turned around for me you know when when all of a sudden the focus wasn't on my eating, it wasn't on, um, I guess, my mental illness either. It was literally just on my life and like the environmental factors. And I'm not saying that my eating disorder, my mental illnesses were just from environmental factors, but I feel that if you can control, not control, but if you can accumulate environmental factors around you that are all positive and that set you up for success, it makes, you know, those negative emotions, your negative habits, it makes it a lot easier to avoid doing them when the environment around you is supportive and positive. For sure. And I think it also comes back to having like better coping mechanism and like tools because at the end of the day that's what an eating disorder is it's when you feel like overwhelmed and you feel like you can't deal with those strong emotions that like you cut yourself off by either not eating enough or eating too much Mm -hmm. and obviously there's other kinds of eating disorders than just those two and it's not always as black and white but yeah yeah Camille can you tell us a little bit about coping mechanisms and about how you had to kind of reverse your coping mechanisms that's a good question so I I always say that like recovering from a eating disorder is basically like wiping your your brain off like blank you have to reprogram everything, like every thought about food around body size, 
around body shape, around fat, around food, around like everything. And so what helped me a lot during recovery was either distraction or then do the opposite action. Um, so when I didn't feel like eating, well, okay, that meant I didn't have a choice but to eat. And when I felt like really anxious about eating, well, then distractions. Like I did see a, a dietitian for a while, but since I wasn't in a like hospital environment like I felt like it triggered me more than anything so we took her information and like what she told us and her knowledge and then we with my psych, uh, psychologist we adapted it to like my life so that way it was more smooth and easier for me to do like small steps um, but I remember like I used to go to the gym as well and like workout and so I had to stop that I had to stop um, any kind of intense exercise for a period of six months which is actually what they recommend and they do in the hospital as well I actually do want to like explain that distractions and do the opposite of mm -hmm. like, sometimes it's it's difficult for people to understand the whole like what is a distraction right mm. so give us examples of like what a good distraction is so like a good distraction would be something that doesn't come off with like a negative consequences so that wouldn't be alcohol that wouldn't be drugs that wouldn't be sex it's more about like grounding yourself so mm. a tv show Obviously, not don't stay in front of the TV like twenty four seven. That's not what we're saying. Um, but it's in those moments of heightened anxiety and those moments where your um, nervous system is like on alerts that you take a step back and you realize that okay, well, I I don't have the tools right now to deal with this situation so let's like take a momentary lap out of my brain if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah I know like when I was recovering and like the whole idea of distractions like so for me distractions were huge mm -hmm. so they were like until you're healthy and until your body is normal again it's going to be really hard for you to just flip a switch and, you know, think better and just eat better. That's going to be really hard for you. So for right now, just focus on distractions. Mm -hmm. And so when you are about to do something self-destructive, do something, like you said, neutral, mm -hmm. you know, paint your nails, like read a book, do a painting, color, um, organize something, you know, even, even like see a loved one that's supportive, you know, you have to be careful not using um, people like people who you can't trust, trust as distractions. Cause like mm -hmm. that cause issues. But if you have the right people to like help distract you from certain feelings, certain thoughts that can be so, so helpful. And like one of the most important tools in 
recovery, especially from eating disorders. Um, there's a study done that actually shows that for women, one of the most important figures in their recovery is their partner, their spouse, their husband, their wife. And in young women or like young girls, it's their mom that's mm -hmm. the most important figure. Camille, when we talked about your eating disorder a while ago, um, you mentioned that you're, you did family therapy. Yes. Yes. Can you tell us about how important you think family therapy is and like some of the good parts of it? Yeah, so actually I was reading this book. Um, it's called Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder because my parents had it when I had my eating disorder and my dad didn't understand at all like what it was. Um, growing up, he made lots of comments on like my weight and oh, like you shouldn't eat that, that those kinds of comments. And like he didn't realize the impact it had on me. So it was as much the family therapy I went through was as much as how to help them cope with my eating disorder, how to um, guide them on how to help me, but also on how to help me set boundaries. Because like I said, our family was pretty codependent on some things. Mm -hmm. So, and when it comes to a child with an eating disorder, like the first treatment they will say is family therapy is possible because it's family is such a big component of an eating disorder like most of the time it comes back to some kind of trauma and attachment with your parental figures mm -hmm. yeah. so if you can like heal that it's gonna help so much now now in a day a time where we can where we maintain recovery what do you think are like really important things that you should do as someone recovered from an eating disorder to ensure that you don't relapse? Well, I make sure that like, um, so when I'm really stressed, I get anxious. And when I get anxious, I get nauseous. And then I don't feel like eating. I know my triggers and I know that's like one trigger of like going downhill. So I make sure that even though I'm not like, I don't feel hungry, I still eat. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big one. Another one is I make sure that I stay away from any kind of diet talks, either from people or from online. Like back in the day, even before I had my eating disorder, I remember like buying those kinds of magazines that, you know, like talk about like how to lose a hundred pounds in how many like weeks right well that's not healthy stay away from that mm. it's bullshit also but that's another subject we can touch on <laughs> mm. um so yeah just surround yourself with like positive uplifting people and also like we talk about it a lot on this podcast but boundaries like if someone makes a comment on your weight like my grandparents still do sometimes but used to do it a lot more like how how do you approach that how do you say hey like this is not okay it affects me and affects my recovery and always 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 put your recovery first mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm putting your recovery first like it's, it's part of 
um, realizing your self-worth, mm-hmm. you know, part of recognizing how important you are and realizing that at the end of the day, you need to focus on yourself before you try to cater to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to let people step all over you or let people hurt you, even if it's unintentionally. You know, yeah. I yeah. I know that it's been like I've still had friends before say stuff like, "Oh, Sarah, you actually have meat on your bones now," and like, "Yeah, sure, like I'm I'm glad that like I'm healthy, but I don't want to hear it." You know, yeah, I yeah. hear that I'm bigger. You mm-hmm. know, like any comment about my weight, my size, even, even if someone says that I'm looking thin, that's triggering too, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, you know, I tell people and most like, like usually the people who are close to me, if someone's not super close to me, I won't bother wasting my energy. I just know to like, not put energy, not put too much time or thought into what they say. But the people who are close to me, I will tell them, like, never comment on my size, you know, like, there's other ways to go about talking about certain things, you know, like, whether I'm looking too big, then, like, invite me to go on a run with you, or, like, whether I'm looking too thin, instead of telling me you're looking skinny, you know, invite me to go to dinner with you, you know what I mean? And then Mm -hmm. there, analyze the situation, right? Like, it's a, um, it's a, it's a tough concept. And even there's a lot of things going on now, especially in the educational system where we're trying to, well, mental health advocates are trying to change how, uh, like gym class works, you know, like, instead of like, you have to eat these four food groups and like don't eat processed food because they're not healthy like no like there's changes to be made about like introducing the concept of balance right Mm -hmm. and not putting too much focus on weight and height or eating healthy or doing enough exercise but instead focusing on just having a balance of everything you know like yeah the next generation of kids we want them to grow up to be better than us you know we want them to grow up to be um healthier both physically and mentally and the only way to do that is to change how we raise them to change how we educate them and uh, i can't stress enough how important education is for children and how important it is to develop a healthy way to educate them yeah and I think a big part of it is also like that helped me in recovery was also to realize that as children, we don't have those notions of like, or at least most of them don't, but like food is what food is bad and what food is good. Mm-hmm. And so there's no like morality attached to it. And it's just food. It's meant to be enjoyed because growing up, I used to enjoy cooking and trying on so many different foods but because of my eating disorder I lost that for a long while and it's learning to recreate that relationship with food. Okay so Camille was kind enough to write out a list of things that one should do when they're recovering from 
an eating disorder. So, Kami, do you want to tell us about them? Yeah, so um, it's basically like you do the opposite of what your eating disorder is telling you. Um, like, a lot of the eating disorder is about, like, control. So what my parents had to do for a long time was actually, like, make my plate for me. And I had to eat all of it because I it, it brought so much anxiety. I had like an hour so I could take like breaks in between. So that's helpful. Um, if you don't live with your parents, maybe ask like your partner to do so. Never exercise alone. Once you eat, don't go to the bathroom or don't try to exercise. Like really just sit there. Sit there for like as long as you can and distractions. What I used to do was with a marker, I would write on the calories and all of that. So I didn't see how much it was because in your brain, you have your own calculator. That's like trying to like think about everything and how much you're eating. So at least like it might take a while before your brain forgets how much it is, but it's a first step. Some people, if you struggle with like body image, which most people do, and if you have like body dysmorphia, cover your mirrors. Try not to look into the windows of shops when you're like walking, hide or break your scale. I would say break, but if you feel like you can't do it, like hide it. Um, what I actually did, like I said, like I didn't go into an intensive treatment, so I had the freedom to do small steps. So because I used to um, weight myself more than once a day, so I started from going to that number to only once a day. And then after that, only like every other day. And that was always in the presence of my therapist. So she could go through the emotions with me after. So I didn't, so the triggers became less and then I could better avoid indulging into the behaviors that's basically just a whole lot of desensitizing yourself to mm -hmm. to the behaviors and the triggers of your eating disorder right mm -hmm. so the more that you can associate things with something different than your eating disorder the easier it is to get better so the more you can desensitize food to calories and like you know needing to get rid of those calories and the more you can associate it with family gatherings, with support, with um, food as your fuel, like the more you can take those steps to desensitize your eating disorder, the easier it is to just intuitively avoid it, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing too that like you mentioned before is at the beginning of recovery you might gain a lot of weight fast more than usual because your body has been starving so it's like oh my god i need this trust your body i know it's hard but trust that like it's gonna stabilize itself eventually and trust that it's doing what it needs to do mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you're not always gonna feel bloated you're not always gonna feel like it's too much food and it happens quicker than you know, but it's going to take longer the longer you avoid it. Mm -hmm. So the more you just um, trust your body and do what is healthy, 
the easier it will be for your body to get healthy and the easier it will be for you to um, deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, people who are in recovery and have seek out like dietitian or nutritionist and they are not well aware of an eating disorder so they might actually trigger you more than anything else stay away from those look into like specialists that are uh, how, at every size mm -hmm. those are the ones that you need one last thing is, I know I, I myself almost fell into it. I saw many people fell into it. Be cautious. When you go from an eating disorder, for example, like thin inspiration, to fitspo, be careful that your, like, restrictive behaviors don't turn into obsession with the gym or with your obsession with looking thin doesn't turn into an obsession to looking fit mm -hmm. because that happens a lot more than you know um and someone that counts of a we talked about this earlier on a movement podcast um episode but counting all of the macros isn't any better mm -hmm. so just be careful yeah for sure wellness isn't always what it seems to be mm -hmm. so healthy is balance right mm -hmm. and if you can't be healthy in your head you can't be healthy physically mm -hmm. well that was our episode for tonight so hope you enjoyed our listen bye, bye.